Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm your host, CEO Dan Mariachin. We appreciate your spending some time with us today. I'm pleased today to be joined by Anat Wilf and Adi Schwartz, authors of the new book, The War of Return, How Western Indulgence of the Palestinian Dream Has Obstructed the Path to Peace. In their work, Wilf and Schwartz explore in well-researched detail how the Palestinians have used the refugee issue and the right of return to consistently thwart efforts to achieve a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In order to do that, they write, the Palestinians and the international community must come to terms with the fact that there will be no right of return and that their continued call for it has no basis in international law. Inat Wilf has served as a member of Knesset. Among other roles, she previously served as senior fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute and foreign policy advisor to Shimon Peres. Wilf is also the author of a number of books that explore key issues in Israeli society, including Winning the War of Words, Essays on Zionism and Israel. Adi Schwartz is a Tel Aviv-based freelance researcher and journalist who is a former staff writer and senior editor for Haaretz. He has particular expertise on the Palestinian refugee issue and Israeli and Jewish current affairs. Schwartz is currently writing his PhD dissertation at Bar Ilan University on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Welcome to the program, Einat. Welcome, Adi. Well, uh, let's start at the, at the beginning. Uh, your book has received a great deal of attention. Uh, and the question really is, why did it take 72 years, or let's put it even further up, why has it taken so long for this complete story to be told? Um, it's difficult to know why it has taken a while for this story to be told and for, for making sure that it actually gets the attention it deserves as the most important issue in the conflict. And I think at least one of the reasons is that especially people who wanted peace, who want to see this conflict uh, over, uh, really were hoping that there is another story there. That there is a story about land, that there is a story about basically two peoples, each wanting uh, a state in the land, and that there is a solution at hand, a very simple one and straightforward one, which is about dividing the land between those two peoples. And that makes for a very simple story and at least a hopeful story. Our story uh, is a more difficult one. It's a story that is kind of a tough life lesson one. It tells people there are no shortcuts. If you want to resolve the conflict, you have to get to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is and has always been the fact that the Palestinians have refused to accept the Jewish people as equal claimants to the land and have insisted on this idea of a right of return as a way to undo uh, the state of Israel, which they continue to believe is a unique injustice. That's a far more difficult story. And in general, I think people like better stories with a potential easy, happy end than there are no shortcut in life stories. So in 1947, the UN partitions the, the Palestine mandate into uh, an Arab state and a Jewish state. Um, the Arabs declare war on Israel. The war ends in December of 1948. And then two things happen. 
the United Nations adopts UN Resolution 194, which has been a, a resolution that has been referred to in, in various uh, ways over the years. And then a year later, in December of 1949, UNRWA, which is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, uh, was founded. Uh, tell us about 194 and how that's impacted this issue. And then let's begin the discussion about UNRWA and its role and its original intent. So let's start with 194, which I think actually uh, the number nobody would have uh, remembered today uh, unless uh, the Palestinians used it since then, and perhaps uh, not only the Palestinians, but Arab states, claiming that uh, supposedly this resolution grants them a right of return, which it does not. So what is it? What, what is Resolution 194? It is a General Assembly resolution, as you said, in December 1948, basically outlining a framework for a peace agreement between Israel and the Arab states, uh, finalizing the war. Now, it had 15 clauses. Uh, one of them was the very typical um, article for a peace agreement that all sides and all parties agree to solve their problems peacefully, for example. Another uh, article called for uh, economic um, cooperation um, for the benefit of all people, etc., etc. There was one uh, particular article, number 11, and this is the only one which the Palestinians mentioned to this day, which called for uh, the refugees who wish to return uh, and want to live peacefully uh, with the surrounding, they should be allowed to do that. They should be allowed to return or to become. Now, as you see, the, the, the wording of the, of the resolution does not grant a right of return. The term right of return does not even appear there. Uh, it is very, um, uh, Israel has to agree and the people have to uh, be able to say that they are willing to live in peace with their neighbors. And uh, there was also the op uh, uh, option of uh, compensation. So it does not grant a right of return. Interestingly, the Arab countries, the Arab states, when this resolution came to, to vote, they all voted against, because again, this was a framework for peace. Arab countries had no intention whatsoever in December 1948, when the war ended, to sign a peace agreement with Israel. But a few weeks later, they decided in, in I must admit, a very acrobatic uh, diplomatic move to cling only to one article, Article 11, while ignoring totally the idea of the resolution, which was peace, ignoring every other article, such as economic benefit of the area, because as we know, um, they decided to boycott economically the state of Israel. So ignoring all other articles and just clinging to one article, that Article 11, claiming that this gives them some kind of the Palestinian refugees, gives them a right to return. Now, just to mention that legally, Resolutions, uh, General, Assembly, General Assembly resolutions are not binding according to international law. The United Nations Charter mentions it specifically that the General Assembly is a very general decision, a very general area of discussion and resolutions does not have uh, any binding effect. Uh, so that is, that is the, the overall uh, environment of Resolution 194, but this does not um, uh, affect the, the, the position of the Palestinians to this day that 194 somehow grants them an inalienable right to return to their homes. 
Before we get into the creation of UNRWA, I mean, let's step back a second. In essence, uh, as a result of the war, uh, there was really an exchange of populations, uh, not unlike what had occurred a number of times in Europe, that there were hundreds of thousands, uh, some people say as many as 850,000 over a period of about uh, maybe 12 years, uh, Jews who came from Arab countries, who were forced out of Arab countries and found a home in Israel. Um, <clears throat> those Palestinians who, who left, um, there, there was uh, a, a special uh, situation created for them, unlike all of the other exchanges of populations and refugee situations that, that had been occurring uh, not only in Europe uh, after World War II, but, but uh, before that as well. Why was there a, a, a situation where the Palestinians were granted a, a special situation? So indeed, uh, the context of the 20th century, and especially the mid-20th century, where the Palestinian refugee uh, issue emerges, uh, the entire context of the 20th century is one of transition from empires to nation states. In this context of bloody wars and partitions and civil wars and delineating of borders once empires disappear and collapse, is that populations move. Uh, just like you said, there are exchanges of populations and expulsions and hundreds of millions, if not, uh, I mean, hundreds of millions of refugees are created throughout the world in Europe and Asia and Africa. And all of them move on. The general message to all refugees throughout the 20th century is yes, it's a tragedy. War is terrible. You lost your homes, but you're not going back and you move on and refugees built their lives to the places where they fled or new places, which is why we don't have any refugees from wars of the mid 20th century, except the Palestinians. Now the Palestinians initially were treated in a way that was not different than others. UNRWA, the UN Relief and Works Agency was established as a temporary agency, which by the way, after 70 years, it still is. Uh, we bring in the book the story of Ankara, another temporary agency for the Korean refugees from a war that happens around the same time. The reason that it was a temporary agency was because the notion was that it would be focused on settling the Arab refugees in place and then close down once they're all settled. And just to remember, they are Arabs, they share the same ethnicity, the same language, the same history, the same uh, religion for most cases. So, uh, in all other cases where that was the situation, people were absorbed, refugees were absorbed into their surroundings. And that was the assumption that they would be absorbed into Jordan, where the vast majority of them were, including the West Bank, in Syria and Lebanon. And UNRWA was established and giving funding and a lot of support by the US and the UK for that to happen. But unlike Ankara with the Koreans that achieved its goals, settled the refugees, no one went back to their homes with a lot less money uh, than UNRWA. And look at where South Korea is today. That could have been the Palestinians. But unlike Ankara, the Palestinians, the Arab refugees and the Arab states reject any form of settling the refugees because they know that if that were to happen, the war of 1948 would be essentially considered over. And that they didn't want. They wanted to keep the war of 1948 open so that they can undo it at a later time. 
And this is where we are to the present. UNRWA recently uh, celebrated 70 years of existence. Uh, it should be not proud of being 70 years in existence, it should be ashamed because it is still temporary after 70 years. It should have closed down after a few years, having settled all the Arab refugees and moved on. But the Arab refugees themselves and the Arab states did not want to move on and did not want to accept that the War of 1948 and its consequences in the form of an independent state of Israel is a done deal. So UNRWA becomes uh, a, a permanent temporary organization with a bloated bureaucracy. And it starts registering Palestinian refugees. Now they're living in not only uh, in, in the West Bank, uh, living in Jordan, uh, they're living in Syria and Lebanon. Tell us about this, this registration program that has moved today to a point where we're talking about millions of people, even though there may be perhaps 40,000 original refugees perhaps living. How, how did that happen? How did they get away with it? So indeed, in the beginning, uh, UNRWA starts out uh, as a quite benign and positive attempt, as they not just explained, uh, mainly uh, financed by the West, by the United States and the United Kingdom, trying to bring back, uh, reintegrate, uh, uh, resettle those refugees uh, who were displaced during the war. And um, very quickly, uh, already in the middle of the 50s, we have evidence to the fact that the level, I mean, the standard of living of all those refugees is higher than what they had prior to 1948 and is at least the same as many other people living in the Arab world. But then, uh, due to geostrategic uh, reasons, the um, international community decided that it is not going to, to close down UNRWA, but to maintain it as it is. Now, with no humanitarian basis, when the standard of living was already high, everything that UNRWA had to do is to find something to do. They had nothing to do by that time. They could have closed the organization, but they had to survive. They had to sustain themselves and keep on going. So they started, for example, a huge education system. Uh, by now, everything that UNRWA is doing is an education system and a healthcare system. So they have a huge uh, system. It's basically uh, a welfare state uh, of hundreds of schools and tens of thousands of teachers. And the same goes with the healthcare system. Now, uh, very quickly, children were born, and by now, grandchildren and fourth and fifth generation. And uh, UNRWA decided to register all those descendants as refugees as well. Now, one thing which is important to understand is that UNRWA is responsible for creating their own rules. You will not find anywhere in international law or in a Security Council resolution what exactly is the definition of a Palestine refugee, a Palestinian refugee? It is only the definitions of UNRWA. Now, what makes it peculiar is the fact that since its inception in 1949 to this day, there wasn't even one Palestinian refugee who was resettled or taken off the list. So that is the reason how a number from a number of 700,000 Nowadays, you have more than 5.5 million registered by UNRWA. By the way, the Palestinians themselves count much more.
because they count also people who arrived in Sweden or in Germany or in the United States and already have new passports. So for them, they are also considered as refugees. But even according to UNRWA, now there are about 5.5 million refugees. One more thing is that it's a combination of this unique status. The status of the Palestinian refugees is different. The definition is different from any other refugee in the world. And if you add to it the fact that they have never done anything to resettle them, that makes for the outcome of a huge number of refugees. It is the only group of refugees whose number only increases. When you look at any other group, you will see that the number decreases and increases according to events. If a large number can go back or resettle or uh, there was a peace plan, etc., etc., the numbers change. Only with the Palestinians, the number only increase, and it will increase next year and, and the next and the, and the year after, uh, as long as this uh, charade will not uh, will not end. How important was the the education uh, system in UNRWA in reinforcing the promise of a return? In other words, keeping these these fires burning as a uh, really as a as a political wedge as a political issue so one of the most shocking realizations for us in uh working on the book and doing the research is to discover the major role of unra in basically creating the the palestinian national consciousness now the connection between a national consciousness and a national education system is nationalism 101. Uh, basically every nation creates the sense of collective identity through its education system but what's interesting in UNRWA is that you first have the UNRWA schools and then thereby they become the vehicle that creates the palestinian national collective the palestinian national consciousness now that in itself would not be an issue. A lot of uh, nations and national collectives were essentially formulated and born in the 20th century. That was the century of the, of the birth of nations. But what's unique about UNRWA is that it constituted the Palestinian national consciousness singularly around the issue of revenge and return. So to be a Palestinian became to be a person who demands this idea of return. And return seems benign. Sometimes I think we should just define return as what Palestinians demand is the superior right to settle within the sovereign state of Israel in their millions in breach of Israeli sovereignty. Maybe if uh, I said it this way, people would understand why no such right exists in international law. But this is what the Palestinians began to uh, kind of believe and became part of their national consciousness in the UNRWA schools. And it became their national identity that their ultimate cause is this idea of return, is this idea of liberating Palestine, which is not the West Bank and Gaza, but is Israel, that this is their unique just cause, that they are a nation of refugees who suffered a unique and unparalleled injustice in history, and therefore it is incumbent upon them to seek justice. And in the Palestinian uh, wording, justice means only one thing, which is no Israel. Uh, and the honor schools were critical of that. In the book, we tell the story of 
the perpetrators of the Munich massacre of the Israeli Olympic players. And the perpetrators were almost all children of the refugee camps who grew up in the UNRWA education system to believe that they must exact revenge. I mean, you need to believe that in order to slaughter and torture uh, athletes in an Olympic game. Uh, and to still be proud of it. The, the ones who are alive are still very proud of this act of terrorism. And we quote one person who said, uh, Fatah can only train one uh, warrior, one terrorist at a time, but UNRWA trains and prepares the hearts of the masses. And that's what UNRWA did, did and still does. So founded in 1949, and we, we're moving through decades now, but once the international community uh, settled into the, shall we call it, the UNRWA way, uh, that process became cast in concrete by the Cold War. So the West, fearing that it might lose the Arabs to the Soviets, uh, more or less uh, allowed the perpetuation of this, this problem uh, by, by doing nothing. At, at what point did that happen? That someone said, let's say in the in the foreign ministries and in the State Department that said, well, let's, let's leave this and not touch it because uh, we're afraid this could be uh, uh, to the Soviet advantage if we do. Exactly. So we found cables running back from the Middle East to Washington as early as 1952 from the, for example, the ambassador in, in Amman in Jordan saying, listen, guys, this whole UNRWA thing, they're doing nothing. They're not cooperating with us, not, neither the Palestinians themselves, nor the Arab governments. We're just waiting, uh, wasting our money and energy, and uh, we have to change course. Now, this was already in 1952. But then discussions began in Washington, how to change UNRWA, how to do something else, a different model. And when Arab leaders understood that this is where things are going, they came to Washington, and we detail a, a scene in the book where the Saudi... Uh, ambassador uh, in the United States comes to uh, the State Department and says, listen, guys, you don't want to do it. And he basically tells them, the Americans, that they already once made a very grave mistake. That was the petition plan, that they agreed uh, to the creation of a Jewish state. And now, a decade later, we are talking about the end of the 50s, the Arab world would consider closing down UNRWA as the same as the decision for the petition plan. So he basically blackmails them, blackmails the Americans, and there is even considerations of uh, closing the Suez Canal and putting some special taxes on every ship that goes through the Suez Canal. And you have to remember that this was a very different world. First of all, the Arab world was much more united. There was such a thing as an Arab world. The Arab League was stronger. For example, leaders as Nasser, who were pan-Arab and were talking in the name and were really powerful, I mean, in relation to what we have today. The economic and geostrategic uh, situation was totally different. This was the Cold War. And the fear of the Americans was that if they leave the Arab world unsatisfied somehow, and the Soviet Union, it would be much easier for them to take control over the area. There were real economic issues. That was the decade uh, right after the war, I mean, World War II, where Europe really needed Arab oil and all the American uh, program for uh, 
the reconstruction of Europe was around the economic uh, free flow of oil. So all of these uh, ideas together made it for the Americans to come to the decision that with all due respect to this minor issue of UNRWA, $100 million, $200 million, they have bigger issues. Remember 1961, you have the big issue of the Berlin uh, airlift, et cetera, et cetera. There were so many war, the Cuba uh, crisis. So deciding to uh, keep and throwing this money, continuing uh, UNRWA, seemed like the lesser evil. They even thought that, okay, this is a United Nations organization. How bad can it be? It should have been something neutral. To be honest, what happened is a much worse uh, situation because as Einat said, the Americans, mainly the Americans, but the West thought that they put this issue into, the, you know, into freezing, nothing bad will happen. But as we now know, um, UNRWA and the entire refugee camp culture, as we call it, was the incubator of the PLO, of the terror attacks that happened in the 60s and the 70s. So the West thought that, okay, we can live with it, but the effects were detrimental. Uh, if you look on the safety of Jordan, if you look at the Black September, that also started in the refugee camps. The, Le the Lebanese civil war, the Palestinians in, this, in the refugee camps also had a role there. So this entire construct of, of unwanted refugee camps had very, very negative effects not only on, on Israel, but on the entire region. And uh, how did the uh, right of return as an issue work its way into the various attempts at negotiating peace, uh, particularly after Oslo? So once uh, the Palestinians lose the backing of the Soviet Union, uh, they turn to the West and especially to the US for support. And in the process of turning to the US, they begin begin to speak in an American language. Uh, they speak of rights, they speak of justice. They begin to speak of self-determination. Now, they do not actually make a strategic choice to part with the idea of liberating Palestine from the river to the sea, but they speak in a way that sounds moderate to Western ears, and more and more Westerners begin to believe that the Palestinians and their leadership have made a true break with the past and are now only interested in a Palestinian state in part of the land. So the assumption uh, throughout the 90s is that the Palestinians are truly ready for partition of the land in a way that it was envisioned by the UN in 47 between an Arab state and a Jewish state. Now the Palestinians have made no such transition as we show in the book in all their pronouncements, uh, in all their documents. They do not break with the past. They continue their attachment for this idea that millions of them possess this right of return. And of course what happens is that when they declare their support for two states, everyone in the West, including Israeli peacemakers, Israeli on the left, people like Adi and myself, believe that the Palestinians are really ready for a two-state solution. Uh, and 
everyone forgets about this idea of return. Nobody takes it seriously. Everyone thinks it's just a bargaining chip that they will uh, forego when they can actually get hard cash, which means territory. Uh, once they will be given a proper proposal, then they're going to give up this nonsense of right of return. Because just to be clear on the numbers, if a Palestinian says they support a two-state solution, which they say they do today, but they say that the right of return is sacred, which they also say, if asked, then the only two states they envision in a peace agreement is a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza and another Palestinian state to replace Israel. There is no peaceful Palestinian vision in which Israel is allowed to remain as is, as the sovereign state of the Jewish people. Now, what happens throughout the negotiations of the 90s, this is the assumption certainly in the Western side and in the Israeli side, that the Palestinians are ready for a two-state solution. And when Ehud Barak goes to Camp David in 2000 with this assumption and his negotiating team, uh, and he puts on the table a proposal for a full Palestinian state, uh, fully sovereign, which means an entity occupied in the West Bank has a no settlement. Settlements were either going to be dismantled or exchanged for equivalent land and capital in East Jerusalem, including in the old city, holy sites. So he gives the Palestinian the hard cash, the territory that everyone believed is what they were waiting for. Uh, and what happened is they walk away. This happens again with Abu Mazen and Almert in 2008. They walk away from concrete opportunities to have a state because the idea of return was never a bargaining chip in the service of another goal, such as statehood. It was always and still is the goal itself. So when given the choice between statehood and return, Palestinians have repeatedly chosen to forgo statehood if that meant that they would have to close the lid on any possibility of return. And this, of course, came as a shock to the negotiating team. It came as a shock to, to Israelis of the peace camp. And this is what drove people like Adi and myself back to the drawing board to see, well, what is really the conflict about if they didn't take the opportunities of having a state. Yeah, sometimes I think there's a certain uh, naivete, or maybe it's not naivete, maybe it's we, we have our own uh, diplomatic experience, which is based on, at least here in this country, two parties differ, you, you sit at a table, uh, you even lock the door, throw away the key, but at the end of, of a session, you shake hands and you, you have an agreement on something. We have it in labor negotiations here, we have it in business negotiations, it goes on all the time. So I think there's a certain assumption that everybody else in the world just operates the same way. Now, in these various negotiations, uh, from time to time, uh, there have been various proposals that there would be uh, 25,000 Palestinians who would come back, family reunification. But you're saying, really, that the Palestinians have uh, probably scoffed at, at that and say, well, that's, that's not what we're looking for. Um, so is it you think it's denial that has driven this issue in the international community? Is it, is it obliviousness? Is it naivete, which I mentioned, that fails to see how much this issue has become such an obstacle to progress over all of these decades? I think, first of all, that you're totally right. And um, 
this was the intention or the, the thought of many people also here in Israel. We have a problem. Let's try to solve it pragmatically, right? You have two kids arguing over, uh, uh, um, you know, something. Then you give it to one of them for half of the time and for the, the other one, the, the second half. So somehow you manage to reach some kind of a, of a, of a formula. But for the Palestinians, um, the issue is not necessarily 25,000 people or 55,000 people. The, the issue of the refugees is the symbol for the entire worldview of this conflict. The conflict as not being between two equal rights, or let's say that both sides, Jews and Arab, have some rights over the land. No, for them, for the Palestinians, this is a conflict such as that uh, between France and Algeria, or the British and India. For them, it is simply unconceivable to come to the Indians and tell them, okay, let's partition India between the Indians and the British. Or to the Algerians, let's partition the land between the French and the Algerians. So for them, it is simply unjustice, and 100% should be theirs. Now, if you ask why, or is it a denial, or what's the reason? So A, we prefer to try the, the easiest way, that's one. Second, I do think that the uh, interest that were for so many years uh, so strong and gave the Arabs very strong political clout, and I'm talking about the oil, I'm talking about the presence of the Arab bloc. Actually, this is a point of optimism because we are now at a very different point. There is no Arab world, certainly not in the sense that we were talking about in the 50s. Soviet Union is not there anymore. So I can understand the British and Americans in the 50s and 60s that telling themselves, okay, we can't solve this. Let's try to make some kind of a status quo and, and live with what we have, you know? Now the situation is different. If anything, you're getting very good messages from Saudi Arabia, and perhaps I should say uh, some messages, and from Gulf states, and they're saying, well, we're not interested in this anymore. We're not interested in uh, perpetuating the Palestinian problem. On the other hand, you, you, you hear foreign ministers or like the Emirati who's saying, okay, we have our differences with Israel, but we should have some kind of a cooperation on other issues. I think this is exactly the time the West should realize that the reasons for maintaining UNRWA in the 50s are not there anymore. There is no reason to continue with this uh, infinite you know, flow of money, of diplomatic um, support. It is high time, if they really want to promote peace and the security of, of this area, that this charade of, of, of endless number of refugees forever should stop. So I think actually there's also a point of optimism in this. No, I would I would agree with that, but I think and that's but that's around the the center. The center still has this this intransigence on the part of the Palestinians on this issue, and I would I would say there's a companion issue <clears throat> to it as well, which is this denial not only of the right uh, refusal to recognize Israel as a Jewish state, but more importantly perhaps the idea of rejecting the notion of a Jewish attachment. Israeli attachment to the land itself, the, the historical connection. So it's good to see what's happening, uh, not around the edges, because it's more than around the edges. There are some important things that are happening, but still we have this, this intransigence really at the, at the center. Now, before we leave 
Uh, your book also makes uh, some recommendations, Enat, about uh, how to move away from UNRWA and uh, to put this issue um, at least into the hands in the UN, perhaps of the High Commissioner for Refugees, like every other refugee situation, or some other ways uh, to, to take it out of, out of UNRWA. And you also comment on the defunding by the Trump administration uh, of, of UNRWA. Um, and you say some things about how that focused more or less on, on corruption rather than, than the, the issue at hand. So tell us about the, the proposals that uh, you're making. So our proposal comes from a, a basic idea that sounds truly banal, that if we are to ever have peace, the war must be over, right? This is basic. Uh, and UNRWA and this endless refugee situation is keeping for Palestinians the idea that the war of 1948 is not over. This is why we have the situation, because from their perspective, the war of 1948 is not yet over. And in their mind, they can still win it, which means they can still undo the establishment of the state of Israel in the course of that war. So the war must be over. How do you send the message that the war is over, which was the message to all other refugees in the world, the war is over, move on. How do you send that message? First and foremost, by closing down UNRWA completely, not reforming it. It's not a reformable body because its core being is keeping the war open. So we have specific proposals. The amazing thing about the whole refugee issue is that it is the biggest issue, let's say mentally, ideologically, in terms of keeping the war open, but in practice, it's a very small issue because 40% of the refugees are citizens of Jordan, which means they're not refugees. Citizens are not refugees. The other 40% live in the West Bank and Gaza, which means they're going, this is where they are. This is where their future is going to be. So they're not refugees. Uh, another 20% who are registered in Syria and Lebanon, we by now have enough data to know that most of them are long gone. So the actual problem is probably 200, 300,000 people who are living without a national status in Syria and Lebanon. And these are exactly the kinds of numbers that the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees knows how to handle through local settlements or resettlement in third countries. And in doing so within five to 10 years, the entire number of Palestinian refugees could be brought down to zero. So the problem is actually very small. We show what steps need to be taken, dismantle UNRWA, make it clear that Palestinians are not refugees for the few who need a national status, take care of that. Uh, make clear that Resolution 194 does not give them the inalienable rights to uh, undo Israeli sovereignty and settle within the state of Israel. Uh, take all of these things together and then the message that the War of 1948 might finally be, might begin to get through, which means then we are finally set on a course towards peace once it's clear that the war is over. Well, we come to the, the end of our time. I have to tell you, I, I think your book should be required reading for every diplomat who works on Middle East issues, every diplomat, let's say, not even on Middle East issues. Uh, or every journalist who, who writes about the region. I think you made an exceedingly important contribution to understanding why it is that the Israeli-Palestinian issue has to this day gone unresolved. And uh, really, we, we thank you for, for doing this book and thank you for 
uh, joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Thank you for having us. Well, thanks to Enoch Wilf and Adi Schwartz for joining me, and thank you for tuning in. If you like what you've heard so far, make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to visit our website, benebrit.org, to learn about our work, and like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. For my guests, Enat Wilf and Adi Schwartz, I'm your host, Dan Mary Ashen. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast.